True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Crime Fix podcast with Stevie B. There is no intro to this episode which I could write which would do justice to this bizarre story which I'm just about to tell you. I had to check the facts of this case on more than one occasion to ensure that I had not stumbled across a work of fiction. It is a story which contains a complex web of lies, deception and a case where I'm going to allow you to come to the conclusion whether the victim solved her own murder or whether it was police work alone which brought the killer to justice. So sit back and get ready for a story which is beyond belief. I am your host Steve. We're up to episode 6. This is your true crime fix. And this case has been written in the memory of Jackie Paul. Ricelip is a leafy suburb in West London. It is served by five tube stations on the London Underground and it is very close to Heathrow Airport. In the 20th century, Ryslip was a hub for a lot of military activity as it is the home of RAF Northolt and the former home of a number of American air bases. Ryslip Lido is one of its most famous landmarks. The former Victorian reservoir with its man-made beach and the miniature railway, is the main spot for visitors on a hot summer's day. Ryslip and its surrounding villages are the closest thing to countryside London can offer. It was also the main filming location for a lot of the British comedy series The Inbetweeners. Jackie Paul was born Jackie Margaret Hunt on the 19th of October 1957, in Eton, Berkshire. Her father's name was John and her mother's name was Betty. Jackie also had three brothers, Terry, Michael and Lee. Jackie married Malcolm Paul in 1981, but unfortunately the pair separated in 1982. Jackie was living at 31 Lakeside Close in Ricelip by 1983 and was working as a shop assistant at the greengrocers by the name of Ricelip Fruitier. But she also did some part-time work at Whispers Nightclub in the town of Chesham. Jackie had just started a new relationship with someone whom she'd met at the nightclub and was getting on with normal life. On Sunday the 13th of February, 1983, Paul Newman who was Jackie Paul's neighbour in Lakeside Close, was surprised to hear a frantic knock at the front door. 
Upon answering it, he was greeted by a man who introduced himself as the father of Jackie's current boyfriend and he was asking to borrow Mr Newman's phone. Jackie, Mr Newman learnt, had not been seen for 48 hours and was not answering the door. Concern was raised for her welfare and Mr Newman let the man in. When again there was no answer to the telephone call, the men agreed that the police needed to be called. Police Constable Tony Batters was the first officer on the scene and with the other two men in tow, PC Tony Batters forced entry into Jackie's flat. They knew there was something wrong when they first opened the door and there was a strange odour in the flat. Jackie Paul was discovered laying face down on the living room floor. She had been strangled with a length of cord which upon a brief look around her flat it was discovered it was the cord to the bathroom light switch. The length of cord, which was the ligature, had been left at the scene. She had been found wearing what the police had described as day clothes, but her jeans and underwear had been pulled down. Jackie was very fanatical about wearing gold jewellery, which she had been collecting since she was a teenager. It was discovered by the police when the first interviews were conducted with her family that £4,000 worth of jewellery had been stolen. This immediately gave the police a motive. Altogether, there were 21 items, which included rings, earrings, bracelets and necklaces that were missing. Jackie had been badly beaten and her body was showing severe signs of bruising. Detective Superintendent Tony Lundy of the Metropolitan Police was the lead investigator and decided that the information about the missing jewellery was to be released to the local media in an attempt to catch the killer selling it. There had been no forced entry at the flat which indicated to the police that Jackie had known her killer. Police started interviewing all of Jackie's known associates A number of them had alibis for the time of the murder and were quickly eliminated. A subsequent post-mortem on Jackie revealed that the cause of death was strangulation and that she had been sexually assaulted. So this is where the story takes a twist. The police received contact from a lady by the name of Christine Houlihan on Monday the 14th of February 1983 to inform the police that the spirit of Jackie had been in contact with her. So I'm going to take a break from the story here just to say that when it comes to psychics and mediums getting involved in cases everyone has their own opinions and beliefs with people understandably being sceptical of things that they do not have any evidence of. I almost felt a collective roll of eyes when I said that last paragraph. That sceptical approach was very much the one that the Metropolitan Police took when Christine Houlihan contacted Ryslip Police Station on that day. But I need to rewind a little bit just so that you know what had made Miss Houlihan believe that she needed to go to the police. Mm. 
Miss Houlihan said that she had gone to bed on Saturday night and she felt something pulling at the duvet. It was at the end of the bed and she said she saw an unmistakable shape of a woman. She tried to communicate to the figure, but it just disappeared. Miss Houlihan, who was 22 and lived a short distance from Jackie in a house owned by Hillenden Council in Ricelip Gardens, learnt of the murder on Sunday when the body was discovered. She was not feeling well on the Sunday again and for the second time in two nights went to bed early. Christine spoke out about her experience to the Ricelip and Northwood Gazette. I was in bed and I could not rest. Something was keeping me awake. Then I again felt the tugging on the bed sheets and realised there was a woman trying to get my attention. All I could see was a white outline of a person tinged with a burning white energy. I thought it might have been the murdered girl, so I said to the spirit, Jackie, is that you? Jackie Paul. The light flickered on and off. I heard a clear voice in my ear. Jackie Hunt. She wanted me to go to the police and help her to get justice. I told her that I'd need concrete evidence, otherwise the police were not going to believe me. Jackie started swearing about the murder. The air was blue with it. Then she left. Jackie did return some time later and did start to reveal details of the murder, the killer and the layout of her flat in Ricelip where she was killed. The spirit apparently went into incredible details pointing out things like the position of two cups in the kitchen with one being washed whilst the other still had coffee in it. She also described in minute details a black address book, a letter and a doctor's prescription. The spirit then, according to Christine, took her back to the scene and the time of the murder and replayed the whole attack in horrific detail. Christine recalled she relived the whole scene of the murder and the spirit showed her what had happened. She commented that it was utterly terrifying watching it through her eyes as a man strangled her. I saw his hands go around her throat and pull the cord tight. The vision haunted me for years. I suffered from depression for a long time afterwards. Christine stated she saw Jackie being thrown around the bathroom and dragged into the living room. She states she felt Jackie's pain and bitter anger until she finally felt the life drain out of her. Christine stated Jackie kept showing me freeze frame pictures of the scene and all I could do was write it down. So this was the recollection that Christine Houlihan had taken to the police. Greeting her with scepticism the police eventually agreed to interview her Detective Sergeant Andrew Smith and Police Constable Tony Batters, who was the first person on the scene, 
eventually interviewed her on Thursday the 17th of February. PC Batters recalled the day which he attended the crime scene. I had been the first officer on the scene and remained there for many hours. Christine could not have seen Jackie's home, but she managed to describe the scene just as I found it, including the victim's position, her clothes and her injuries. She gave us extraordinarily accurate details about the murder. She knew that in the course of robbing Jackie, the killer had left behind two of her many rings she always wore. She also knew that Jackie was suffering from depression, going through a divorce, and that she had been given a prescription by her doctor. That she also did not intend on being home on the night that she died, but as she had felt unwell, she was still there. She also knew that just before the murder, she had been visited by two males who were called at her property on innocent business. The two men who visited Jackie's property were going to take Jackie to work at 7.45pm. She decided that she was not feeling well enough to work, so stayed at home. The two officers described Miss Houlihan as being in a trance-like state. To further convince the two detectives, Miss Houlihan told D.S. Smith three deeply personal facts about Jackie that only he was aware of. Each one proved unnervingly accurate. On being told these facts, D.S. Smith turned white and began to shake. Miss Houlihan said that Jackie had travelled in criminal circles but had recently decided to turn her life around. This was proven by Jackie's husband being in prison at the time of the murder. Whilst in one of her trance-like states, Christine Houlihan revealed that the spirit of Jackie, although she had not given her a name, had given her a description of the killer, and I quote, Five foot eight-ish, dark skin coloured, afro wavy hair, early twenties, Jackie knew him, April to May birthday, he was a Taurus, tattoos on his arms, swords, snake, rose, I get the name Tony, he has a nickname, not a proper name. The two officers, highly engrossed in the information they were receiving, pressed Miss Houlihan for further information. Miss Houlihan then suggested they try a technique called automatic writing. The technique of automatic writing, or psychography, is a claimed psychic ability allowing a person to produce written words without consciously writing. The words are supposed to be drawn from the person's subconscious or a supernatural source. The officers found Miss Houlihan a notebook and a pen and they just waited. 
A short time later, after numerous doodles, Miss Houlihan's writing came up with the name Pokey. During the rest of the interview, she revealed other pieces of information. For example, the person had been working recently, working either painting or plastering, but did not have a regular job. He was clever with cars. He had a girlfriend who had dark hair and a C in her initials. During the interview, Christine mentioned the names Betty, Sylvia, Terry, Barbara Stone and Tony. No other names were given. Altogether, Christine gave the police 130 pieces of information which could be verified. So I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on what you've just heard, as there's a lot of information. And that is also the point. The sheer volume of the information that was given to the police by a psychic. The first bit of information that could be verified was the names which had been given. Betty was Jackie's mother. Sylvia was the mother of Jackie's current boyfriend. Terry was Jackie's brother. At the time, however, Barbara Stone and Tony didn't mean anything to the police. Whilst investigating the crime, the police discovered that a lot of Jackie's social life revolved around a number of pubs in Ryslip and the surrounding area. The investigation team assigned a detective sergeant to act as a pub liaison officer who would visit all of the pubs that she frequented and inquire with the customers if they knew anything. One of the pubs was the Windmill in the neighbouring high street of Ricelip Manor. Whilst the detectives were there, one of the patrons suggested that they speak to Pokey. When inquiring further, the detectives learnt that this was the nickname of Anthony Ruick. This investigation had taken place on Tuesday the 15th of February 1983, two days before the interview with Christine Houlihan. Whilst the detective was at the pub, Ruick walked in. When the detective interviewed Anthony Ruick, it was noted that he had scratches on his hands. He informed the detective that he had obtained these through a motorcycle accident a few days earlier. It was also discovered that Anthony Ruick had been interviewed previously with her other acquaintances and had offered the alibi that he was on a train with his girlfriend at the time of the murder. As a result of the police interview with Miss Houlihan, the police visited Anthony Ruick's house on the 18th of February to re-interview him. During a search of the property, a jumper was found in a dustbin and was bagged as evidence. One of the things that was said during the interview with Miss Houlihan was that the killer was trying to dispose of crucial evidence. 
Anthony Ruick was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Jackie Paul and was taken to the station for questioning. Anthony Ruick was a plasterer in Uxbridge at the time of the murder. However, this was his only legitimate occupation. He made the majority of his money through burglary and grand theft auto. He was also known to have been a good mechanic. Once again, all information which matched the information that was given at the interview with Miss Houlihan. Anthony Ruick was mixed race, 5 foot 9 inches tall. He was born in April and he was 23 at the time. He also had tattoos and Ruick's girlfriend was a petite brunette whose surname began with the letter C. She was also a friend of Jackie's. Unfortunately for the investigation team, the actual tangible evidence to convict Ruick was limited. Ruick stated that he was with his girlfriend at the time of the murder, but had seen Jackie the week prior. Ruick had a cast iron alibi. Try as they might, the police could not pick holes in it. They questioned and re-questioned everyone he had come into contact with and anyone who may be able to undermine his alibi. They even dug up his garden in a desperate bid to see if he buried any of the evidence. As the police were unable to disprove his alibi and had been unable to locate any of the jewellery taken from the crime scene, after 15 months the case went cold and the investigation was closed. Jackie's body was laid to rest in Hillenden Cemetery next to her grandfather. On the third year anniversary of Jackie's passing, the local newspaper, the Ricelip and Northwood Gazette, published a story about the investigation. It was revealed that during the 15 months when the investigation was taking place, over 5,000 lines of inquiry had been followed up, which had led to no new leads. 14 years after the loss of Jackie, the Hunt family, who still lived in Ricelip, badgered Detective Chief Inspector Norman McKinley to reopen the case. In 1999, after a call from a member of the public, Detective Chief Inspector Norman McKinley reopened the investigation. The telephone call, however, which was received, was in relation to another suspect. Jackie's clothes were sent away for examination and semen was found on them. As the initial DNA had been used without success, the idea was to use the remnants of the fluid from the microscopic slide using a new technique called Low Copy Number or LCN. Low Copy Number testing is a sensitive, time-consuming form of DNA profiling which can be used on very small quantities of DNA. However, the history of the Forensic Science Service and its use of low copy number testing 
is not without its problems. The problem with LCN is that the techniques used to amplify the DNA are very effective but necessarily crude. Any DNA found will be amplified and it is therefore very difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish between the original trace and any contamination. LCN evidence has allowed convictions to be made in several cold cases. For example, Mark Henson was convicted of rape in 2005, 10 years after the crime was committed, from the reanalysis of a microscopic slide. This technique was also used to investigate traces which were found in the Madeleine McCann missing persons case. So far, the technique is only used in several countries, the UK, the Netherlands, Poland and New Zealand. Twelve months later, Detective Chief Inspector McKinley received a call from the lab they had a match. The DNA was a match for Anthony Ruick. Ruick, who had pursued a career of petty crime, was on the National DNA Database because of a theft that he had committed in 2000 and was linked to the murder. The likelihood of the match being Anthony Ruick was one in a billion. Pieces of skin had also been found under Jackie's nails after she had tried to fight off her attacker. In the intervening years, Ruick had moved to Sirencester, which is in Gloucestershire, and he had got married and now had children. He had also continued to be friendly with Jackie's family and her friends. When the police went to arrest him for the murder on the 24th of May 2000, he was in a car park in Sirencester. He put up a struggle and tried to escape. He declined to answer questions, issuing a statement saying that he had been in a pub with his girlfriend at the time. Just weeks before his trial started, however, Ruick changed his story and claimed that he had had consenting sex with Jackie and that she was fine when he had left. He stuck to that account in court. Anthony Ruick, who was now 40, stood trial at the Old Bailey in London in August 2001. The hearing was presided over by His Honour Judge Kenneth Mackin. William Boyce QC was representing the Crown and Nicholas Price QC was representing Ruick. The court heard about Jackie's jewellery, including several rings on each finger. Mr Boyce said much of the jewellery had been taken. The defendant knew she had jewellery. He was her lover for a period. Although he was short of money before the killing, he was found to have more than might have been expected afterwards. 
Jackie had been supposed to go to work on the night of the murder. Two men had called for her with the intention of giving her a lift, but she decided not to go as she was not feeling well. She had then had a visit from Ruick, who she knew as a friend of a friend whom she'd never liked. She let him in, thinking he might have a message for her boyfriend, who was currently incarcerated. He then proceeded to sexually assault her, killing her with the cord of the bathroom light switch. William Boyce QC told the jury, Suspicion fell on Ruick at the time, but investigations could not reveal enough evidence for him to be charged, so he was left in abeyance. But murder files are never closed. DNA technology did not exist at the time, and although the killer had left his semen on the victim, there was no way of linking him to the crime. Forensic scientist Nicholas Boyle told the trial, LCN testing has been designed to deal with very, very small amounts of body fluid. You are very much more likely to pick up low levels of background semen using this technique. But Ruick's counsel, Nicholas Price QC, claimed that Jackie had been alive and she had been murdered by someone else, probably one of her other lovers. This was salt in the wound for the Paul family, who had to hear their loved one's reputation being besmirched. On Friday the 24th of August, 2001, an Old Bailey jury took four hours to find Anthony Ruick guilty of murdering Jacqueline Paul. After the jury unanimously found him guilty, Judge Kenneth Mackin, in passing sentence, told Ruick, 18 years ago, you murdered a 25-year-old girl who had done no harm to you whatsoever. What happened in that flat, no one will ever know. But you put around her neck a ligature and strangled her. This was, in my judgment, a brutal murder of a defenceless woman who had been nothing but kind to you. He added, But for the advances in science, you would not have stood trial today. The judge commended Mr McKinley, who said, It is very gratifying to be able to help Jacqueline's family to finally know the truth. Ruick believed that he had got away with murder for 18 years. This is an example of how advances in forensic science will help police to catch those who think they've escaped justice. More will be called to answer for their previous crimes. Tony Lumby, who led the original inquiry, flew in from his retirement home in Spain for the trial. After seeing the only murder case he had failed to solve concluded at last, he was said to be pleased for Mrs Paul's family. Detective Superintendent Lundy said, This case is always going to be the one that bugged me. It was a thorn in my side, really. The most infuriating thing 
was not being able to give the family the satisfaction of a conviction. Imagine what it has been like for this murdered young woman's family who had to live for 18 years not knowing who killed their daughter or sister. Senior forensic scientist Dr Jonathan Whitaker said, This case shows enormous benefits to the criminal justice system of our new DNA technology, combined with the National DNA Database. It also shows how useful this can be in old cases where leads have gone cold. With the application of a dose of science and innovation, the investigations at last can bear fruit. People may think they have got away with murder for decades, only for science and the law to finally catch up with them. Mrs Paul's brothers, Terry and Lee Hunt, attended every day of the trial. Terry Hunt said, Ruick has had 18 years of freedom that he should not have had. But this is finally justice after 18 years of waiting. I have no feelings towards Ruick whatsoever, but I have nothing but praise for the police. She was a loving sister and we will never forget her. So, for those of you who are listening and wondering how many of the 130 pieces of information Christine Houlihan gave detectives proved to be right, the answer would be 120. This is incredible, and although there have been a number of people who have queried the validity of the information which was given to the police, one being Tony Ewins, who wrote an essay with the help of Adrian Shaw, I got quite a bit of information from his essay for this episode as he did have access to the notes of Tony Batters who was in the interview so that was a first hand source. But I will take this directly from an essay on survivaltop40.com which analysed three academic scripts on the subject but it gives a rebuttal to the remarks made. I quote some critics have claimed that it is not possible for Houlihan to have obtained her information through normal means. When each fact is considered separately, their arguments make some sense. Sometimes. For instance, it is possible, as one critic suggests, that Jackie's father, who was allowed to access the murder scene, momentarily to identify the body, happened to pry his eyes away from the body of his daughter long enough to note that there were two coffee cups sitting on the kitchen counter. It is also possible that he felt the necessary curiosity and the presence of mind to examine these cups and determine that one was clean and one still had some coffee in it. And it is possible that in his grief-stricken state he thought to describe those cups to someone else. And yes, it is possible that someone was sufficiently impressed by two innocuous coffee cups 
to pass the information on. And then somewhere down the line of gossip, news of these cups reached Houlihan. Possible, but extremely unlikely. The one thing that I would raise is how many people must Christine Houlihan have had to interview to obtain the information that she did. One of the policemen commented the only person who would know that much information was Jackie. I personally cannot explain how it happened. And I'm not saying that this proves that all the information was received from Jackie. But I would love to hear people's theories on how Christine Houlihan was able to relay all of this information. Maybe this is one that the girls over at the Haunting History podcast can help me out with. There was one piece of information that was stated by Christine Houlihan which remained a mystery. As much as they investigated, the police could not find out what Barbara Stone meant and the name had not got any link to any suspects or any known acquaintances. It remained a mystery. Until the trial, that is. Tony Batters, who was now retired, attended the trial of Anthony Ruick. One of the days, he happened to sit next to Terry Hunt, who was Jackie's brother. During one of the breaks, Tony asked him whether the name meant anything to him. Taken aback by the name, Terry replied yes, he knew it. Barbara Stone was a childhood friend of Jackie's, who had been killed several years prior to Jackie's passing in a car accident. Paranormal, or good old-fashioned police work, you decide. But the main thing is, Jackie's killer is now behind bars, leaving us just one question. Did Jackie Paul really solve her own murder? So that's it for this week. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I have researching it and actually telling it. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or look out for our Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. So that's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter or our Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. I'll be posting information about this week's case on there. I also have an Instagram and I'm slowly working out how to use it. So there might be more on there in the coming weeks, but I can't promise. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, and also if you have any suggestions for any cases, please contact me at True Crime Fix Podcast at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner take care everyone